Welcome to the Benito Juarez Experience. Today's episode is part one of a two-part show on telenovelas with our guest, Dr. Melissa Badizquierdo. In this particular episode, we explore the origins of the telenovela genre in Mexico and how it evolved to have very religious characters and how these characters played out. This is the Benito Juarez Experience, joint project of the Hispanic Atheist and the Latino, offering a Latinx perspective on politics, society, and culture in the United States and Latin America. Today, in the Benito Juarez Experience, we explore the world of telenovelas. In mainstream Anglo culture, primetime TV is dominated by situation comedies or sitcoms. In Latin America and Spanish language TV in the USA, the primetime spots are occupied by telenovelas, whereas they also known in the Anglo world as soap operas. These telenovelas are not just badly acted popular entertainment. They are cultural items in Latin America. And as such, religious plays a major part in the storytelling and in the behavior of characters. Hello, I am Joanne Navarro-Rivera, and along with my co-host, Luciano Gonzalez, we are the Benito Juarez Experience. So, Luciano, are you excited about telenovelas? I am looking forward to today's conversation because I don't think, I know that the research is out there and that it's been published, but I don't think I've ever heard people actually critically dissect telenovelas for their cultural value, at least in a voice-to-voice -voice conversation rather than in scholarly papers. Uh, today, we're actually having a person who is an expert in telenovelas, and it's Melissa Abarak Izquierdo, who is an assistant professor of history at Farmingdale State College that's in New York. She's also the author of A Melodramatic Miracle, the Cultural and Political Economy of the Mexican Telenovela, 1950 to 1980, that's really the golden period, which was an essay in soap operas and telenovelas in the digital age, global industries, hybrid content, and new audience, which was edited by Diana I. Rios, who actually is one of my mentors at the University of Connecticut, and Mari Castañeda, another of her essays, A Lacrimose Heroine for the Masses. The Origins of the Cinderella Plotline in Mexican Telenovelas, 1968-73, was published in Modernization, Nation Building, and Television History, was edited by Melissa Chacar and Stuart Anderson, published by Rutledge in 2014. Her research interests are Latin American popular culture and its connections to politics. She has a PhD from Stony Brook University, and she probably just made a record Uh, not just because she is uh, our first guest, but because I don't think anybody can break the record of knowing me the longest of any person Ooh. that we are going to invite to this show because we went together to the greatest place of all time, uh, the University of Puerto Rico at Rio Piedra. Tell us a little bit about your research, uh, Melissa. Oh, uh, thank you for inviting me. I, uh, uh, I love uh, to talk about telenovelas. Uh, well, my dissertation was about Mexican telenovelas. I am trying to divorce from Mexico and telenovelas, but they keep bringing me back. So actually the latest article I'm working on, it's in the earliest incarnation of uh, a serialized melodrama, well actually melodrama for prime time, for Mexican television before telenovelas existed in Mexico because the first one was done in 1958. 
but television in Mexico started in 1952. So what did they show at 7 p.m. between 1952 and 1958? So I'm looking at that, which were teleteatros, uh, which is uh, TV adaptations of plays. Well, that's amazing. So what did they show in those years? Well, that is very interesting. You know, just to start bringing the idea of you know religiosity in uh, telenovelas, I think I have to explain sort of the background of the uh, television industry and the artistic environment of Mexico during the 1940s and 50s. And the reality is that something I discovered when all this research is that all these quote-unquote Mexican actors we grow watching during the 80s, many of them actually weren't Mexican. Many of them they were part of the Spanish migration that occurred during the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s. And some others uh, may have been born in Mexico, but, pro uh, but probably were uh, the kids and grandkids of the few ones I'd done some genealogical research of immigrants from other parts of Europe. There's an important Jewish community in Mexico, and a good number of them work in television. So what I at least am encountering on the uh, teleteatros is that actually part of the reason they weren't able to become as popular as telenovelas is that you needed a lot of uh, cultural capital. You know, they try uh, because they didn't have money to pay contemporary Mexican writers uh, to write these stories, so they adapted a lot of the canon. You know, so uh, French. Uh, plays from the 19th century, Oscar Wilde, Cervantes, uh, everything from uh, El Siglo de Oro Español, you know, the golden age of Spanish literature in the 1500s. So, you know, if you are an illiterate Mexican living in the, in the you know, very well-known uh, working class neighborhood of, Te of Tepito, you won't quite see that much uh, Cervantes or Globe de Vega. And, uh, and what I have encountered is that, you know, one of the questions you asked about how religion shaped the novelas is like, well, actually, I think uh, from the people producing it, from the people acting them, they didn't seem to be too religious. And even eventually these businessmen are more of the, I guess, secular Catholic, if that is possible, and perhaps you guys are more... Uh, well versed in all these, uh, you know, these ideas. You know, is there any sociologists out there talking about there could be a secular Catholic society of, you know, cultural Catholic? But what makes uh, eventually telenovelas become more religious oriented, or at least show them more explicitly, is the Catholic Parents Association. And these are all these very strong sort of push uh, groups that you know send letters to the television stations or to the radio stations, send letters to the president. I actually encountered while doing research some letters to the president from this you know Liga de la Decencia, which was a very important pressure group in Mexico in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, if anyone is interested, there's actually, you could get through interlibrary loan. They put together, they used to do this uh, leaflet every week called Apreciaciones, and it was a review of all the movies and theater shows in Mexico during the 1950s, and they would give them a grade according to Catholic 
uh, values. Uh, um, they, for some reason, hate it a lot, like I said, de Bernarda Alba from Federico García Lorca. So it's that group that in the 50s and 60s we start writing to, uh, you know, the Mexican television industry to, the, 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 to say, oh, you know, you have to keep the values of uh, the Catholic Church. And, and the reality is that I don't see a very explicit Catholic uh, telenovelas until the early 1960s. And I will think for two reasons. The audience gets bigger. It goes to the provincial cities where there's much more religiosity. Uh, and, and that doesn't happen until 1960s with videotape. Because until 1960, 1962 roughly, television was exclusive to you know, Mexico, Guadalajara, and sort of the big cities of the Republic. Oh, and Monterrey, of course. But Monterrey had its own regional television. And I never had done research about that. And it would be interesting to see if there were more religions than the Mexico City. Um, in any case, that's when you start seeing things, you know, in 1964, they did the telenovela version of the life of San Martin de Porres, for example. So Juana Inés de la Cruz also got her own telenovela. Um, and, and, and that's, you know, what I see going on. One of the things that I'm curious about personally is in your research, have you done any, um, have you considered looking at the demographics of not just Mexico, but any place that had telenovelas at this time, especially because I know that Mexico's history is a lot less religious than a lot of people realize. Uh, mm -hmm. One of the main examples that I can think of is the existence of politicians who actually actively champion separation of church and state. And I have yeah. to wonder if that means that maybe during the 60s there was possibly a revival of Christian mm -hmm. sentiment throughout Mexico. That is a very good question. And the answer, I think, will be yes and no. And I say yes and no because uh, something that I, I've been chasing for the longest, if anyone out there knows anything about this, is a good archive of these Catholic pressure groups and their ideas of telenovelas. That was sort of when I was imagining this dissertation, I wanted to know what all those Catholic ladies we, you know, sending letters to the television stations, you know, did they really have power? Did they, you know, are they just doing, you know, lip service to the Catholic Church? And, and actually, I think what, will, what, what is occurring in the 1960s is that for the first time, La Liga Femenina Católica is losing uh, at least uh, membership. Uh, you know, because um, you probably very well know about the Cristero War in the 1930s. Yep. Uh, a lot of these Catholic leagues were created in the aftermath of the Cristero War. So you're going to see, I, I was able to find the sort of membership uh, numbers. And of course, the 1940s had like the highest amount of, uh, of membership. And by the time I'm able to get to some of, you know, their, uh, their journal by the 60s, their membership is actually dwindling. And, and you see how a lot of their leadership, is, you know, 
all all ladies and because it's the 1960s and it's the counterculture and you know this is just a few years before the Loyalco. it has to do with you know student protests and uh, you know quote unquote you know the use of marijuana and all this stuff I think what's occurring in the 60s is that the more secular less religious uh, members of the privy sort of make uh, it close to these Catholic leagues because they both have a concern. They're concerned about the Jews. They're concerned that, you know, with these new, you know, thinking about the global 60s and the challenge to authority, they're sort of got a getting out of the, in the case of the Catholics, you know, of the good path, in the case of the pre-challenging the authority. Now that you mentioned the Catholic Church and, and Catholic groups, that, that gets me thinking of two things. One is, uh, in terms of Catholics, you know, had me, you gave me memories of uh, El Visitante, the, the Catholic newspaper uh, yes. when we were growing up in Puerto Rico. Uh, that uh-huh. They had like, all these movie reviews and they had their yes. own. Their, but those are actually related to what is now uh, the M, uh, at least in the United States, the M. PAA, like the, the rating agency, actually started as a Catholic group uh, oh, that was censoring movies. That. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes. yes. So, and the other thing that got me thinking about that, also in the American context and more in the Latinx context, mm-hmm. is, I don't know if you have read uh, Making Hispanics by Cristina Mora, who is a sociologist mm-hmm. at uh, Berkeley, I believe. Mm-hmm. And, and she, she kind of Part of it is tracing the history of Latino media and how it shaped uh, Hispanic identity. Mm-hmm. And basically, it goes back to the uh, your, your favorite uh, family in Mexico, the, the founders of Televisa, um, <laughs> yeah. actually are, are the predecessors, uh, basically mm-hmm. also are, are among the founders of, of what is now Univision. Yes. And that part of, of, of their strategy was kind of creating this programming that created this set of values, uh, which mm-hmm. is like, you know, this whole stereotype of family values among Latinos, mm-hmm. which I encounter mm-hmm. in the old days, my students always talking about Latinos having family values. It's actually, mo- a lot of it goes back to that era. Like, there was an intentionality of creating a politics of respectability. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm based on religion and, and these mm-hmm. family values. And mm-hmm. so I don't know how, you know, that, that what you said in what it was going in Mexico, it, it, I mean, it's certainly the same kind of group of people doing yeah, it. So yeah. it makes a lot of sense to me. Okay. So now that you mentioned that, you actually made me click something. Um, so what I was telling you about these sort of, you know, 1950s Jewish, Spanish immigrants, many of them, of course, Republicanos, they, talk, they are not, I, I never have been able to find sort of ideas of their political positions because, you know, they are in exile and, you know, they escaped the civil war. But my impression is that they probably are not friends of the Catholic Church. However, at the same time that this happened in, in the 60s, you're going to see a change 
in the leadership in, at that time, Telesistema Mexicano, what eventually will become Televisa. And what will occur is that many of the television, television owners, Emilio Escarraga Vidaurreta and Romulo O'Farril Sr., uh, they are more closely related, in the case of O'Farril, to the PRI, to the more secular, uh, you know, a, a pre, and in the case of um, Vida Urrueta, uh, well, Emilio Azcarraga Vida Urrueta, he actually supported uh, Almazán. Almazán was uh, one of the first presidential uh, candidates to run for, uh, for the PAN party, Partido de Acción Nacional, which is a northern Catholic base, you know, middle class Catholic based party. But he was supporting the wrong candidate. That guy didn't win, and the person who won the, ele uh, the, election, the, election, the presidential election of 1940 was actually Manuel Avila Tamacho, who was the pre-candidate. And what occurs with him, I only have scattered information about his politics uh, after that period, is two things. Even though he was the first person to ask the, the government for a permit to create the first uh, television station, that wasn't give, given to him. That was given instead to the Ofarrios, who were friends, of, very close friends, uh, of the president of the time, the guy who will um, succeed Avila Camacho, who was Miguel Aleman. Second, even though you know, it's, it's one of these things that at distance you say, man, I think they did it just to bug him. You know, he he's a television, he was a radio owner. He had the connections. He had the money. He even had converted his radio headquarters to turn it into television. He had made the connections in the United States. Why did he gave the permit to that guy who is just friend and only has experience with newspapers. Um, so I always, well, me and also Andrew Paxman and other uh, researchers always have interpreted that as a way from the pre, well, from Miguel Aleman uh, in the pre to tell him like, hey, we remember you supported a pan uh, candidate back in the election of 1940. Um, and the second thing is that that guy seems to totally uh, um, distance himself from politics. But by the late 1960s, he starts retiring. And his son, Emilio, Emilio Azcárraga Milmo, becomes the president of Televisa. And he has actually personally a more pragmatic idea. It's, you know, we are, you know, Catholic, we are, we're not really Catholic, we are Guadalupanos. And to some extent, it's him who starts thinking that that is the way to appeal to the working class, to create this very Catholic uh, image. And, 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 and I don't see this, I don't see the very explicit idea of this Cinderella, you know, the very good virgin out there, playing to the virgin, until really the 1970s. I think that's an excellent segue for what I want to sh well show in, in, in audio version. So I want us to listen to mm -hmm. a clip from mm -hmm. a telenovela. It was actually the last telenovela I fully saw, like I would use the word religiously, Abrázame Muy Fuerte, 
uh, was in the early in the early 2000s. Uh, I know mm-hmm. it's amazing. Uh, and this is a clip. This is toward the end of one of the last episodes of the telenovela. Mm-hmm. And listen to. Virgencita. Mándame la muerte. Que se muere de amor. If you don't know Spanish, well, I feel sorry for you. Nobody's perfect. In here, this actor uh, is asking the Virgin Mary, the Virgin of Guadalupe, actually, to let him die. Why? Because he married the uh, main female character, so she couldn't marry the villain. Now, of course, she married, they got married for that reason, so she, she couldn't marry the wealthy villain. But that also means that they didn't consummate the marriage, so you know, she could stay virginal, uh, even though well, she wasn't the house. She was in a uh, very sexy lingerie. So I don't know how he actually you know, got to deal with that. That is a very but good then, question. The hero of the soap opera, the main male character, comes back to town and she wants to marry him. So the best solution that they come up is not a divorce, but divine intercession from the Virgin of Guadalupe so he can die, she can become a widow, and live happily ever after, which is what I call big Catholicism in a soap opera. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and so how do you... So, so now that you tell all these kind of story, uh, you know, these inside baseball of the the foundation of Televisa. So when do you start seeing like that kind of Cinderella, like virgin story like that goes into these very feminine tropes that we know now? Well, that is very interesting. Uh, I will say it starts in the 70s. But just to add more gossip, uh, more bochinche to the situation, Towards the late 70s, Emilio Azcarragamimo, uh, well, actually not him, Valentin Pinstein, one of the most revered uh, producers of telenovelas from the 70s and 80s. And what will occur is that they're going to do some very interesting soap operas in the late 70s, starring young, beautiful Lucia Mendez, which, by the way, not me, but very respected historians, she was at that time the girlfriend of Emilio Azcarraga Milmo. And if you see those telenovelas from 1978 and 1980, they are very interesting. And what I mean is they're interesting is that they actually break away from that hyper-virginal stories that I start seeing in 1975, particularly starting with Rina. Uh, but, uh, you know, she does these, you know, it, it, it's more sexual, there's, uh, you know, a, 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 I think probably the best example to use here will be Colorina from 1980. She is a, a singer in a cabaret. The music is very disco influenced, and some of the aesthetic actually is influenced not so much by disco, but by the Fichera movie genre that was so popular in Mexico in the 1970s. And I don't know, uh, you know, to introduce the feature genre 
to, to your audience, in the 1970s, the Mexican indus- uh, movie industry had declined greatly from its you know, golden age, you know, late 1930s, mid-1950s. So by the 70s, there are these stories who are quite... Oh, what is the... I'm looking for a... Quite... Atrevida? Runchy. You know, uh-huh, Raunchy, 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 thank you, yes. Where you actually see women enjoying sex, you see nakedness. Usually it's women who live in Mexico City. They work at night in these cabarets, which of course since the 1930s always has been a code word for prostitution. You see gay characters, actually. And, and of course, those movies is not something that, uh, uh, you know, Mexican La Liga de la Decencia or Catholic Parents Associations were happy about. So those usually were shown in cinemas, in you know, B cinemas from neighborhoods. That's not something that respectable families would go to watch. So when you have a telenovela, when you are, and if you are interested, Colorina is in its entirety in YouTube. Watch the first three episodes and then try to look for Las Ficheras, one of the original movies of the Fischera genre, and you are going to see some of the similarities. And I, I, I must say, what they did with Colorini in 1980 was very tame. But, you know, you can see the, the influence. What happened with Colorina is that after the, uh, the first, I'll say maybe 15 episodes, the sister of the president at the time, uh, Jose Lopez Portillo, his sister Margarita Lopez Portillo was the head of um, Radio, Televisión y Cinematografía. Uh, and she was appalled for what was going on in Colorina and made Colorina change from prime time to 11 p.m. and from Channel 2, which was at that point in 1980, uh, you know, national network, to just Channel 4, which, which is the, the channel of Mexico City and its suburbs. So what you're going to have is that when, you know, this sort of late 1970s generation is trying to push the boundaries in things that I particularly don't think are that progressive, it's just about sexuality and the exploitation of women, but even something as, you know, quote-unquote, uh, not as progressive, they get a strong backlash and pushback from a very powerful person, which, again, brings me to my obsession from the beginning of, that you know the Catholic lady in and, and it's in and their influence in Mexico and you know I'm using it sort of as a as a trope. Let's let's remember, uh, woman, you know, middle class women are the ones consuming these products, are the ones who have the time to write these letters, are uh, the ones who are an important audience for a lot of these uh, products. Thank you for listening to the Menito Juarez Experience. Please subscribe to the show in iTunes or your favorite application. Also, provide a review if you can, preferably a very good one. Also, remember to like our Facebook page, and now also you can follow us on Twitter. Until next time, thank you.